I know a lot of you guys weren't able to make it last night. And, uh, you know, we were all just judging you and criticizing you. I'm like, I can't believe that. You're, you're not willing to come out into the snow. What's wrong with you? And I said, Spencer, can you pick me up, please? <laughs> You've graciously provided me a car that I will not drive in this snow. So I'm a California boy, man. Snow is like, what's the white stuff? That's pollen, right? <clears throat> and in Tennessee, when it snows, the whole, literally the whole state shuts down. Because uh, we don't have equipment to deal with it. So, yeah, this is definitely the wildest. I, I left Tennessee with a tornado watch, like serious tornado watches, and there was some touchdowns nearby. And then I show up here, and Spencer's like, you may not be able to go home because we have a storm watch. And I was like, wow, this is, this is great. <laughs> may end up over the rainbow and outside of Kansas here soon. <laughs> Yeah, I also feel bad for those of you who missed last night because, I mean, I mean, the Lord really showed up and all of a sudden Tim started speaking in tongues. It was amazing. I'm sorry, guys, that you missed that. But love your pastors. Uh, I had no idea what I was walking into. Uh, Spencer reached out to me from a, from a common friend, and we got the opportunity to spend some time together over, uh, we had two dinners. It was great. And, uh, but I've, I'm, I'm so excited for your pastor's and what they are about and what they're preaching. And um, man, it's just so encouraging to know that you have men who are going to faithfully preach the word no matter what they think the world about, you know, what they think about them. And so it's encouraging and um, I'm excited to jump into this morning. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Tonight or this morning will be very similar to last night. We're going to do some lecturing and then... Uh, the next session that we'll do, uh, two sessions, and then we have the quick Q&A. So we do have a Q&A at the very end. If I say something, apparently I said it's okay to lust after women last night in my vigor. That's not what I said. I meant to say. <laughs> what I meant to say is that being attracted to the opposite sex is not a sin. That's what I was trying to say. So all of you men were like, oh, this is great. I can lust. I like this guy. We should bring him more often. No. Slip, slip of the tongue. So, uh, my dad was also a pastor, and we, uh, he would make the same, same mistakes uh, all the time. And we, I, we grew up preaching out of the King James Bible, and so he was talking about Jesus riding in, and, and, and the King James uses the word ass, and so he didn't want to say that because the teenagers would all laugh like some of you right now are laughing. I saw that. And so he was like, all right, I'm going to use the word donkey instead. And so he gets up there, and he's getting really passionate and excited. He goes, and Jesus rode in on a donkey's ass. And he's like, no, that's not what I meant to say. <laughs> so you know what? There's a reason why Paul calls it the foolishness of preaching, right? It's we fools often mess up. So, All right, this session is what happened to assurance. For those of you that weren't here last night, I'll give you like a five-second review. We're talking about what is the purpose of the Christian life. Yesterday, we were talking about how one of the things that we are wrestling and battling is that uh, it's not that, that we're on a neutral playing field and uh, we either pick up the purpose or not. Satan is trying and successfully distracting us towards things that we think are good, but definitely not what God has for us. And so our purpose is under attack and in many different ways. And one of those ways we looked at was pietism last night. And then today we're going to look at how the doctrine of assurance is often under attack. And the reason why this particular doctrine is so important is it's, uh, if you're not assured of your relationship with God, 
that is a that is a problem. That is a huge problem. During the Reformation, what was really recovered was the doctrine of assurance, which is massive. Because if you do not know if you are right before God, does anything else matter in life? Because you think about it, right? No, nothing else matters. It's like, am I eternally in his wrath or eternally in his love? I'm not sure what it is. And um, history tells us that the Roman Catholic Church created massive confusion and, and created doctrines and anathemas against it where one really couldn't have true assurance. They would, could truly know by faith alone that they are right before the Lord. And if we're thinking about, last night we talked about a warlike mentality. And if you, uh, if, if you think about if any of you have ever been in the military or can just imagine fighting in a war, a soldier who isn't quite sure what side he's on or a soldier who's not quite sure he's well-trained enough to go into battle, that he's going to make it and, and be safe, how, how effective is he? he? Do you know he ends up shooting? Other soldiers is who he ends up on his own side. And so making sure that a soldier is confident and knows exactly where he belongs and knows who he is, that is that's where the Bible leads us. It's a wonderful, sorry, it's a, it's, it, it is a, not a wonderful, it, it's a powerful tactic of Satan to shake the ground of the believer so they're not quite sure where they're standing, if it's stable or not. And one of the ways in which he does this is confusing us in relationship to the law and the gospel. I was going to do an entire lecture on assurance. Last night was, was more connected to that in pietism. I think another connection to this where we get things confused and it's related to pietism is law gospel. Now, if everybody was here, we could probably give a good definition of the law and the gospel, but let's go ahead and do that. If I were to say, what is the law? Most people would say, well, it's the Ten Commandments is a great example. But I want to talk more about the, the purpose and, and heart behind the law, right? When we think about the law, the law, does it, does um, the law, present, I'm going to reverse this because it's going to be easier if I start with the gospel. Let's think about the gospel. When we think about the gospel, is there anything to be done in the gospel? This is a kind of a tricky question here. Is there anything to do? No. What's another word for gospel? News, right? So let me ask you this, uh, is news potential? Is there, any, is there any potential with news? No, there's no potential. Why? Because news literally means the telling of events past, right? When you turn on your television, you watch the news, they're not prophets. They're not, besides the weather, right? We should stone those people. <laughs> False prophets. No, they're telling you what happened. Right? Now, whether it's an accurate representation or not, that's a whole other ball of wax, right? But their job is to tell you what happened. Gospel literally means news. It's telling you what happened. There's, there's, no, there's nothing to do other than you either accept it to be true or you reject it. That's, you've got two options, right? So uh, the, to, to, to herald the gospel means that you are proclaiming what has been done. It's, that's very important to understand. There's no potential and there's no command. There's nothing for you to do. Now, the law is on the exact opposite of that. The law, as Jesus even describes it here, we'll see in a minute, the law is all potential. It's all potential. If you obey, you will be declared righteous. If you do not obey, you will be condemned, right? So it's all potential, and it's all due. I love this. Gospel is done. Look what was done. Law, due, 
Gospel is done, believe, live. Law is do, live. It's important you get those distinctions. And all of us are saying, John's kind of elementary, right? We would all accept that. But do we? Uh, Throughout the history of Christianity, we have been mixing the law and the gospel in our preaching and in our teaching. And when you do that, you actually remove the power of the gospel. It becomes powerless. Because the moment you put do into the gospel, you no longer have assured footing. Because the question is, how much must I do in order to have this good news? All right? So if we're going to look at, give you a good example of this, I'm going to, we're going to look at a couple of passages in the Bible. We're going to start with Mark chapter 10. Most of you probably know this setting. Look at verse 17. We know this story. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, it's important that Jesus points this out just for historical reasons. I think it's good for you to hear this. The man did not think Jesus was uh, God. And so when he says good teacher, he's like, you're not approaching me as God. You're approaching me as if you think I'm one who has good facts about God, but I am not God. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, teacher, all these, notice he took out the word good. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. Did he give him law or gospel? How many say he gave him gospel? Raise your hand. Oh, I forgot. This is non Pentecostal church. You won't raise your hand. Wow, it's hard, right? What's in the passage, do or done? What is it? It's do. Wait a minute. The man said he wants to go to heaven. And Jesus didn't give him the gospel? You ever think about that for a moment? But do you know what we do with this? Well, if it's red letters, it's got to be gospel. Right? I I know mine's black letters, but it's red letters in the Bible. It's got to be, it's got to be God. No, it's not. I want you to pay attention to something in the text. Because he loved him, he gave him the law. Did you notice that? It says, and he loved him because he loved him. The point of it is, the man wasn't coming to Jesus to be saved. The man came to Jesus because he wanted to save himself. And Jesus is like, I love you, dear man. And I'm not going to let you save yourself because you can't. Like the one who can save you is standing here, right? Get ready. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this uh, is not going to make any sense if you don't understand the culture. So we're going to keep reading because the reason why Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark puts in there he had great possessions, uh, it's going to be explained here in a minute. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said, then who can be saved? No, you have to, they've been following Jesus for a while now. You have to ask yourself, 
Why would the disciples be confused by that? Does anybody else pick up on that? Why would the disciples be confused that a rich man can't make it into heaven? We would all go, money doesn't get you into heaven. You can't bribe your way in. You can't buy your way in. It's because in that culture, those who obeyed God and were faithful to God, it was evident by their wealth. God blessed them with wealth. And so this man is standing there, obviously wealthy, and projecting his own self-righteousness. And so the, the disciples are like, well, this, guy, this man is obviously a man of God. And Jesus is like, it's impossible for you to present your self-righteousness as a means of entrance into my kingdom. Can't be done. Can't be done. <laughs> what, how is this passage normally taught, though? We gospelize it, right? We put the two together. If you guys are not willing to sell everything that you have and follow Jesus, you will not be saved. That's what? You have never once in your life forsaken everything to follow Jesus. Let's do this one, all right? What's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. And so you need to repent. So let's say your issue isn't wealth and money. Your issue is... You've actually never one millisecond of your life loved God with all your heart. And so I need you to repent of that. Otherwise, you cannot be saved. Are you doomed? Your head should be doing this right now. Yes, you're doomed. You're doomed. I know you don't raise your hand, so we're going to try this. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to get some out of you, Baptist. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We'll see another one. I'm going to throw a hard one at you after that. Luke chapter 10. Satan has tripped up so many people with thinking that it requires sacrifice in order to be saved. You have to do something to be saved. This is why the disciples are like, well, then who can be saved? Because if that man can't be saved, we clearly are not as righteous as that man. So Luke has an account that he helps us with. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now pay attention to the key. I want to inherit this life eternal with you in the kingdom. What does that look like? He said to him, what is it written in the law? How do you read it? Oh, this is so good. Luke is, he uses such great details. How do you read the law? That means the law can be read and interpreted in two different ways. How Jesus interprets it and how this man's about to interpret it. Law gospel confusion, possibly. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, okay, if that's how you interpret the law, you answered correctly, do this and you will live. What? Jesus, he asked, how do I inherit eternal life? Why didn't he point to himself and go, well, I'm how you inherit eternal life? How did the man approach him? Messiah? Son of God? Jesus? No, he says, teacher. Because what Luke caught it. The man, he wanted to test Jesus. Like, I'm going to trip you up. Again, red letters. So, so, so if Spencer and I are standing out in the grocery store and Someone walks up and says, Spencer, how do I go to heaven? He goes, obey the law. How many of you would be offended? That's not, what are you doing? 
Obey the law? No, Spencer. I'm going to go tell your pastor and tell him to fire you. What's wrong with you, man? You're supposed to be a gospel preacher, not a law preacher. Does he ever give him the law? I mean, does, he, does Jesus ever give him the gospel? Let's find out. But he desired, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now we know this next story, right? This is the um, Good Samaritan. And the point of the whole story of the Good Samaritan is that no one can do that. It's literally impossible, especially in that day and age. No one lives like this. And so he says, which of these do you think provided to prove to be a neighbor to the man following him on the robbers? It's verse 36. Look at me at verse 37. He said, the one who should showed him mercy and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In other words, he's sending him away in his sin. He's trying to prove to the man that he is in desperate need, but the man isn't seeing it. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village in a well, I'm sorry, uh, ends up verse 37. I find it interesting. You have two different people who walk up to Jesus and said, I want to enter into your kingdom. Then they both walked away with the law. But because it was Jesus, we assumed it was gospel. How many times have you guys have heard the Good Samaritan sermon beat over your head and you need to be the Good Samaritan? No, the whole point of the Good Samaritan was that you're supposed to read that and go, nobody can do that. And Jesus is like, I know. So if you try and be a good person towards people in order to get my acceptance, you can't do it. You can't give away your money and you can't love people in order to get into the kingdom. So we got two strikes against us. All right, turn with me one last place. Matthew chapter 16. This one becomes hard. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16. Let's go to verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Stop. Look at me. <laughs> Law or gospel? Oh, this is a hard one, right? Law or gospel, right? Yeah, you're all like, you're not, I'm not playing this trial, it's law. If I'm wrong, then oh, whatever. <laughs> Ooh, how many have been, how many have you heard sermons about you need to pick up your cross, right? If you're not willing to pick up your cross, then you are not, that's tough. That's tough, right? Keep reading. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Whew! So Jesus is laying it on thick. What we don't understand is this metaphor. Uh, anybody wearing a cross or have a cross tattoo or anything like that? Oh, you forgot. You don't reason. Oh, yeah. So we got some charismatics right here. Woo! <laughs> um, anybody have um, uh, a guillotine around their neck that you're wearing? No? What about an electric chair? Why not? You have a Roman crucifix the most brutal, disgusting way to die around your neck. What's wrong with you? <laughs> See, what's interesting is that when the disciples heard that, 
he was saying, well, yeah, the way in which we murder, well, the way in which we put justice to rapists and murderers and the worst of our culture in our day, you know, that would have been the electric chair back a little while. Uh, that would have been a guillotine or hanging them a noose. He goes, you need to go ahead and embrace that life. Then you'll get what it means to follow me. <laughs> the disciples are like, you have to realize Jesus not died on the cross yet. The concept of that was like, Jesus, you're, why are you using Roman crosses? So our, our brains don't process that. The point of it was, is like, your existence in light of the law, underneath God's wrath, is doom and death. You have nothing to offer. You're the worst of the worst. If you can pick that up, then you'll understand who I am for you. So that's the point of the law. You should feel the point of the law and want to go crawl in a hole and pray God can't see you. That's why Jesus is doing this. The salvation of the world is standing before them. And they're like, hey, so what can I do to get saved? He's like, are you kidding me right now? Me. Come to me. And I will give you rest from the law. That's literally what he means. It's all you who are weary and heaven laden, like you can feel the weight of the law. He's like, come to me and I will relieve that burden by taking on the law myself, perfectly obeying the law and then dying in your place on a Roman crucifix because that's the greatest picture of disgustedness our father could come up with. And my father will turn his back on me as if he would turn it on to you. And then when I raise conquering death, I will clothe you in my victory. So when he says pick up the cross, he's, he is using the greatest analogy of the law. The conclusion of the law is God treats you like that. Now, if you can embrace that, then you'll understand what it means to follow me. You have no righteousness of your own. I mean, later on, in case we didn't get this, what does Paul say, right? All that I thought was of value, God considers to be rags that are need to be burned, right? Of no value of no value. But when we confuse this, we confuse the law and the gospel, all of a sudden, it's not the good news of what Christ has done for us. It's here's the good news and what you must do. And if you're not faithful, dedicated, giving up, giving up your money, whatever it is, your assurance is not based upon the accomplishments of Christ. Your assurance is based upon your dedication to Christ. Your dedication to Christ. Spencer and I were, uh, after last night, we were heading to a restaurant and um, we we're talking about this. And I said, one of the things that, a sermon that blew my mind when I was preaching through the book of John, Jesus dies. And what's interesting is you've got these 12 disciples who have publicly walked around following Jesus. And then Jesus dies and uh, they scatter. These strong men become cowards, Right. And it's interesting how John describes the men who bury Jesus. We know one was Nicodemus, but he also describes the other one. <laughs> he describes him as a secret disciple, for he was afraid of the Sanhedrin. He didn't, he didn't describe them as a fake imposter, one who said with his mouth but did not act with his actions. He said this man was afraid of what might happen to him if he professed out loud. Which is interesting. Not Nicodemus. Did I say Nicodemus? Sorry, I meant 
Um, anyways, we, 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 we often think about discipleship or we think about following Christ as there is required strength on your part. And if you're not willing to live in this required strength, then God's not going to accept you. And yet Paul says, when I am at my weakest, when I realize under the weight of the law, I have nothing, it's at that moment I am the strongest because I have to cling on to Christ. What ends up happening in the Christian world is that instead of waking up every day embracing the absolute failure of the law that we are underneath, the first use of the law, which is supposed to absolutely crush and condemn us, we actually believe, as the disciples were confused, that you know, there's, there's an actual accomplishment of the law, and God would accept the accomplishment of that law. And as a matter of fact, require it in order for me to be assured of my salvation. Last night we talked about this, and I'll just mention it now, and then we'll, we'll move on to our next section. When am I supposed to be done? Is it 8, 8.45 or 9.45? Yes, sir. Yes, okay. Oh, great. I got five more minutes. Um. What's that? Somebody's got to tell them. That's right. I appreciate it, you know. <laughs> hey, be careful. People are going to think you're speaking in tongues. So. Um, these jokes only work at a Baptist church. They don't work anywhere else. I get myself in trouble. <laughs> uh, I'm Baptist, by the way, in case you're wondering. So um, there are multiple times in Scripture where... Paul and Peter and John assured, like for instance, 1 John says, I write these things that you might know that you will have eternal life. Not wonder, not do. It's like the knowledge of this, of Christ, creates I have Christ. Um, right, what does Jesus say to those who would come to him? He says, if you believe, you will know that you belong to me. Our assurance becomes what fuels our obedience. Many times people run to obedience to assure themselves. I did this for most of my life until I would have an epic failure, right? It was like I've, I've been consistently reading my Bible. I've been consistently uh, praying. I've been fighting this. I've been fighting that. I, I go out door knocking and I'm, I serve in children's ministry, whatever. I use all of these acts to say, see, look, God must be pleased with me because I have the evidences of this. And then what happens when I fail? And it's an epic fail. It's a hard fail. It's a fail that I'm ashamed of. What's the first thing that you question? And then you fail again. And then, or you have what's called a besetting sin, right? The same sin that you keep tripping over over and over and over again. Men that come into my office, you know what they ask me? I don't know if I can be saved, John. And have that kind of failure. I said, well, you ever heard of Romans 7? Paul describes it this way. The things that I don't want to do, I keep doing them. And the things that I need to be doing, I'm not doing them. What does he say after that? But we just try harder. No, that's not what he says. He says, thanks be to God for who? Jesus Christ, the righteous one who saves us. Man, you should never, ever, ever justify your sin. Well, I'm a sinner and sinner's sin. No, you're an idiot. <laughs> and your wife has the right to call you that. No. What's happening is, I just want to take us back to 2 Peter 1.9. You have forgotten you've been cleansed from your former sins. He starts with your assurance, right? He starts with your assurance. Everything has been granted to you by his divine power. 
Now go in light of that, love and, and be dedicated and, and be charitable and be kind. And if you're not doing this, it's because your sin has blinded you and you've put your eyes off of Christ and you've put your eyes onto yourself and you've, been, you've forgotten you've been cleansed. Assurance is grounded based upon, it is the foundation of faith in Christ. Now, as the reformers in our confessions have told us, our good works can bolster, can encourage us. And at times when I see my brothers and sisters loving and caring for each other, man, that encourages my heart. And Paul will even say, wow, it's so encouraging to see the Spirit working in you. But he will never allow them to, do, to look to that as the ground of their assurance, what they are standing upon. We must stand upon Christ. So the point of it is, is that the law has to remain the law, always. And the gospel has to remain the gospel. What I hear is, well, John, if you preach this way and you teach this way, then people will not want to obey. What does Paul say to that? May it never be. Should we sin that grace may abound? I am, you know what makes me so comforted is if Paul got the same accusations I get. You know, you preach the gospel like that, John. People are going to go live, you know, wild. And Paul's like, thanks for the accusation, but no. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. If you're not being accused of being an antinomian or someone who says, uh, you don't care about obedience, then you're not preaching the gospel right. <laughs> Why does Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? When you add the law into it, you're ashamed of the gospel. But I don't add the law into the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Mercy is offensive. It's really hard to sit there and accept God's forgiveness. And he says, there's no transaction. There's no transaction. The gospel's not transactional. God says, you're dead. I made you alive. And you cannot repay me. You cannot repay me. Now, you can live in light of your new life. But that is never a payment to me. Otherwise, it goes from a gift to a transaction. It's offensive, guys. The gospel's offensive. Uh, um, Paul says later in Romans 5, he says, it's 5.9, he says, your hope in the gospel will not put you to shame. The world's gonna call it shameful. How dare you say that God beat his son on your behalf and he just gives you nothing to do in return. That is, that's divine child abuse. And Paul goes, nope, don't be ashamed by it. It's God's love, right? It's God's love. So law gospel distinction liberates us to believe God's promises. I love this. If you go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, how do we know that his divine power has granted us everything when we read his promises? Can you guys think of a promise God failed in all of the Bible? It's a big book, right? <laughs> uh, let's start thinking about the men he and women he dealt with. We can start with Adam and Eve. Super godly people, right? Nope. Let's go to Noah. Oh, man, what a faithful man. Until he had that thing with his daughters. Oops. Uh, Abraham. Ah, oh, man. We should all be like Abraham, except for like lying about his wife a couple times. That wasn't great. But his sons, oh, wait, they slept with their daughter-in-law and a prostitute. Let's keep going. Oh, David. Man, David. David was really faithful to God until he slept with Bathsheba. Uh, so we have a problem here. Who's unfaithful? 
to their promises, men. Who's faithful? That's Peter's point. God's promises have been proven faithful for every generation. And men are not faithful. Right? Men are not faithful. The law was designed to crush us. It's wonderful. I love the law of God. Because it reflects Christ's beautiful, glorious holiness. (laughs) But I do not want to live under the law as requirement because I am a failure. And so I love the law because it shows me the divine power of God. But under the law, it crushes me. So Paul says we walk by faith, by grace, right? So if you're going to understand how to actually live the life that God's called you to live, to understand the purpose of your life, here's the key. So I say all of this for this one point, which is going to lead us into the next session. Here here it is, guys. Here's the application. If you are wondering about your standing before God every single day of your life, you're going to be so ineffective in this fight. And the purpose that God has for you, which is to help the weak and save the lost, you're going to be so worried about, well, I don't know if I did my sin. Am I, am I, oh, well, you're introspective. The self-examination is not what God has called you to. This perpetual self-examination and constantly wondering if I am the child of God or not is a brilliant tactic of Satan. And why did Paul come in and have to say, church, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, that's really good to know because, you know, there were some epic failures before then, like Peter and David and Abraham. And this, these men face-planted on levels that... I mean, look, I've never did what David did, but you all were like, be like David. And I was like, are you sure you want to be like David? I don't think you want to be like David. David was an epic. I mean, I've never cheated on my wife. But you want to do the whole five stones thing? I'm like, give me a break already. How about we say David lived under grace? And if God can show grace to David, he can show grace to me. Amen. Amen. That's right. If God could show grace to Peter, probably had more of an epic face plant than David, then God can show grace to me, a sinner. And you know what that does? It fuels your heart to go, you know, the world needs to know about this grace. The world needs to know about this. And I might not be an evangelist, and I might not be a preacher, but I'm going to be a part of a community. And this community is going to be a light in our city. And they're going to learn. That this radical God who has this unbelievable grace can save a sinner like me. And he can save a sinner like you. Which leads into our next session. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us uh, book after book and story after story and author after author and sinner after sinner proving to us that it's not the law that saves us. It's the good news of your son. It's faith in the work of Christ, not faith in the work of our obedience of the law. May we never combine these, for it would be shame upon you and us. In Jesus' name, amen.